Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Hey everyone, welcome to episode six Oral Facial Structures. In this episode, we're going to take a look at why we need to know all these structures, as well as the location and annunciation of some of these structures. We'll take a look at the whole overview of the oral facial structures, and this will really help you in the clinical setting when you start to learn the process of your intraoral, extraoral exam. Thanks for listening. In looking at the introduction to the oral facial structures, some of the challenges that exist for students is just the, how to pronounce the words associated with the landmarks. So that's the benefit of listening to a podcast in an auditory mode, is that not only will you become familiar with the external internal landmarks, you'll also hear the pronunciation of these landmarks. So we're going to go over that. Why do you think we do a clinical exam? It's always important to take a look at the why behind what we do as part of our assessment. Uh, One of the most important things to educate your patient about is as you're doing the clinical exam, you can often offer the why behind that, and they may even ask questions or reveal things that they've noticed that's maybe changed, and it's okay to ask them if they've noticed any changes in their dental tissues. Uh, Sometimes you'll be surprised at what they'll share with you. The oral facial structures often indicate general health things like nutritional deficiencies. You may discover that your patient is diabetic just by looking at some of the changes that happen in the tissue between visits. The significance of oral cancer is is in the population. More than 75% of head and neck cancers originate in the oral cavity. And to me, that's a huge motivator. Uh, The death rate for oral cancer is higher than many other cancers. And the most common sites when we're doing our head and neck exam, uh, most common sites to discover cancer is on the lateral border of the tongue, the floor of the mouth, the oral pharyngeal area, and the lower lip, with the lower lip being the most common because it's exposed to the sun, but also the most easily one that's discovered because of its uh, visible abilities. In order to perform an accurate head and neck exam, the clinician should know the anatomy of the eyes, the ears, the nose, and the neck regions, as well as the clinical appearance of normal structures. You want to get to know all of the landmarks because this will make it easier for you to note findings in your clinical record. Your assessment of your patient really starts from the moment you lay eyes on them. You want to take note almost like you're scanning them from right to left and inspect all the different zones, beginning with just the overall color and appearance of their face and what things look like. What do their pupils look like? What does their skin look like? Are there any involuntary facial movements? Are there challenges with their lips or cheeks when they're trying to speak? Do you notice any change in color? Do you notice any scars or lesions, any 
any band-aids. Maybe they've had a recent uh, situation. So you want to be assessing that from the moment you see them and as they come into your operatory and sit in your chair. You also want to take a look at the eyes, ears, and nose and the landmarks that are all within those different regions and be familiar with those different components for accurate clinical charting and record keeping. The external ear landmarks include the earlobe, the tragus, the helix, the anti-helix, and the entrance to the ear canal. The landmarks of the nose include the bridge, the tip, the anterior nares, and the ala of the nose, as well as the nares vestibule. You want to be looking at all of these aspects. The landmarks of the eye is the sclera, which is the white of the eye, the pupil, the eyelids, and the anatomic landmarks of the eye being the medial canthus and the lateral canthus. You definitely want to take note of the pupil as well. These are all part of your assessment from the moment you meet your patient as they sit in the chair and you want to do a brief overview of all the different zones of the face and note any irregularities or variants that you see in your clinical records. The sternocleidomastoid muscle, which originates at the mastoid process and inserts into the sternum and clavicle, is an important landmark for your head and neck exam because there's about 170 to 200 lymph nodes located in the head and neck, and you want to be able to locate and palpate those, and there's a vast majority of them just anterior or posterior to the sternocleidomastoid muscle. There's also salivary glands that you'll need to palpate to make sure that those salivary glands are functioning properly. So knowing just how strongly connected uh, some of our systemic health is to what's revealed in the head and neck exam uh, makes you understand as a clinician why it's important to do that oral cancer screening. So let's take a look at the cheek and dental arches, starting with the oral vestibule. So the oral vestibule is defined as the entryway to the mouth, and it's located between the lips or cheeks and the surface of the teeth. So if you were to pull your lips out and just kind of look in, uh, that everything that you see is defined as the oral vestibule. And then if you're just looking at one side of the mouth and you've pulled out the cheek, you're looking at the buccal and labial mucosa. And the labial mucosa is kind of down as the alveolar mucosa comes out towards the buccal mucosa, which is the lining of the cheek. And then in the posterior region, you'll have the parotid papilla, which gives way to the Stenson's duct. The frenum or frenulum which you'll see as these, it's a fold of mucous membrane that attaches the cheeks and lips to the mandibular and maxillary mucosa. And it limits the motion of the lips and cheeks. Think about it as these little elastics that kind of hold the cheeks and lips, attaching it to the underlining bone of the, um, of the dental arches. And the vestibule is defined as the upper and lower horseshoe-shaped space between those lips and cheeks of the alveolar mucosa. 
with the fornix, the vestibular fornix, being the deepest part of each vestibule. So picture, you know, looking down into the deepest part of um, where the buccal mucosa attaches, and that would be the vestibular fornix. As you're coming out into the vestibule uh, from the fornix, you'll have the mucobuccal fold, which is the area within the vestibule where that labial and buccal mucosa meet the alveolar mucosa. That's your mucobuccal fold. So if you are on the maxillary arch and you've looked in the vestibule and you see that buccal frenulum that comes off of the alveolar mucosa, you should be able to sneak into the posterior region and see the little papilla and orifice of the parotid duct and then you'll go all the way down the buccal mucosa into the mucobuccal fold, and then you have the deepest part of the vestibule being the fornix. Okay, we've looked at the oral vestibule. Now we're going to look at the oral cavity proper, which is the interior of the oral cavity that's located just lingual to the maxillary and mandibular teeth. Now let's talk about the palate. So if you were to open your mouth really wide, you can see the palate. The palate is the roof or the top of the mouth, and it has two components to it. The front of the palate is the hard palate. The back part of the palate is the soft palate. You can feel your hard palate with your tongue and then move your tongue to the posterior edge of the hard palate and you'll be able to feel where the soft palate begins. The hard palate covers the anterior two-thirds of the palate, and it's covered by keratinized mucosa. The soft palate is the posterior one-third of the palate, and that is covered by non-keratinized mucosal tissue. Let's look at some of the features that are located on the hard and soft palate. If you take a close-up look of the palate, right behind or just posterior of the maxillary incisors, is a pear-shaped pad of tissue called the incisive papilla. This is actually covering the incisive foramen, and you may be able to feel this with your tongue. There is a narrow, low ridge called the palatine raffae, which extends from the papilla, that incisive papilla, posteriorly, and that goes over the entire length of the hard palate. Irregular ridges, or folds of tissue called rugae, extend from the incisive papilla and the raffae. The soft palate is the movable posterior third of the palate. You may be able to feel some of these features as you're listening. The palatine raffae is a midline ridge of tissue on that hard palate that goes over the bony fusion of the palate. So where the two halves come together and fuse is your palatine raffae. And you'll find out in oral histology and embryology when you're studying that, that sometimes that ridge of um, bony fusion doesn't always happen and you'll have a cleft palate. So that raffae is the tissue that covers that bony fusion. And you can see that going right down the midline of the palate. As I said, that incisive papilla as that little pear-shaped uh, projection of tissue right behind the two front teeth. The palatine rugae 
are the transverse ridges or folds of tissue that extend outward from the raffe on the hard palate. Think about those as like little landing strips for your tongue when you go to swallow. And then the palatine fovea are small pits or depressions that are located on that posterior one-third of the soft palate. And it's on, there's usually one that you can see, and sometimes you'll see both on each side of the midline of the palate. Starting in the most posterior area, the sulcus terminus, which is a V-shaped groove on the dorsal surface of the tongue. It separates the body of the tongue from the base of the tongue. The foramen cecum is a small pit-like depression that's located at the base of the V where that sulcus terminus points posterior. Now let's talk about the different papilla that make up the surface of the tongue. The filiform papilla, or papillae, are the most numerous papilla. They are slender and they have a whitish appearance to them. They have kind of a velvety texture if you were to take a piece of gauze and kind of walk it over the tongue. And it's located right on the dorsal surface. The filiform papilla fill in the dorsal surface. The fungiform papilla are uh, described as round, flat, and red papilla that are scattered throughout the filiform papilla. They're little raised dots located on the dorsal surface in amongst the filiform papilla. Those are called the fungiform papilla. The foliate papilla are vertical ridges of lingual papillae that are located on the lateral surface of the tongue. The circumvallate papilla are located in the posterior section of the tongue. Those are large mushroom-shaped papilla and they're just anterior to the sulcus terminus. The underside of the tongue, or the ventral surface of the tongue, is covered by non-keratinized mucosa, and it's noted for its visibly large blood vessels which pass close to the surface. You'll also notice pleca fimbriate, which are folds of tissue that have these fringe-like projections that are located just laterally to each of the lingual veins on the underside of the tongue, the ventral surface of the tongue. You'll see these deep lingual veins when you're performing your oral cancer screening. Looking at the floor of the mouth, you'll see the sublingual sulcus, which is a horseshoe-shaped anterior portion of the floor of the mouth into which the mobile part of the tongue resides. It rests there. And then you'll see a lingual frenum, frenulum, that's a thin fold of tissue that connects that ventral surface of the tongue to the floor of the mouth. The sublingual fold is a raised fold of tissue that's situated within that sublingual sulcus on either side of the lingual frenum in a V-shape. It contains the ducts from which the sublingual salivary gland is. The Wharton's duct is the duct from that submandibular salivary gland. 
The sublingual caruncle is a small raised papilla that's located on either side of the lingual frenum at the anterior end of that sublingual fold. That contains the opening of the submandibular and sublingual salivary gland, the Wharton's duct. Now, sometimes students get confused between the location of the Stenson's duct and the Wharton's duct. The Stenson's duct is in the parotid gland, where the Wharton's duct is just underneath the ventral surface of the tongue. The Wharton's duct, located under the tongue, and the Stenson's duct, located up in the parotid gland, you have S and W. So a way that I remember this is sky over water. So take something in nature, which is easy to remember, sky over water. The Stenson's duct is up above by the parotid gland and the Wharton's duct is just below the tongue. Okay, we've looked at the oral vestibule. We've looked at the oral cavity proper now we're going to look at the oral pharyngeal isthmus, which is the opening between the oral cavity proper and the throat or pharynx. The palatal glossal arch, which is the arch of tissue, it extends from the soft palate to the base of the tongue. So look at the word palatal glossal. It goes from the soft palate, palato, to the base of the tongue, glossal. So you'll see this arch, it extends right from the soft palate to the base of the tongue. Then you have the palatine tonsils, which is a small almond-shaped mass of lymphoid tissue that's located just behind that palatal glossal arch. The palatopharyngeal arch is the arch of tissue that extends from the soft palate to the pharynx. So look at the word palatopharyngeal. It extends from the soft palate to the pharynx. The uvula is defined as a small pendulum of muscular tissue that extends from the soft palate and hangs into the oropharyngeal isthmus. The pterygomandibular fold is a fold of tissue that extends from the junction of the hard and soft palate down to the mandibular arch, and it's located just behind the last mandibular tooth. The retromolar pad is a dense pad of tissue that's located just behind the last tooth of the mandibular arch. This same area of tissue on the maxillary arch is known as the maxillary tuberosity. Let's talk about some of the variants of normal that exist in patient populations, starting with Fordyce granules or Fordyce spots. The, this condition is, uh, I would describe it as yellow granular papules on the buccal mucosa or on the lips. The Fordyce granules are little clusters of ectopic sebaceous glands and the buccal mucosa uh, is the most common spot where you can see it. If you stretch out the buccal mucosa and you take a look at those Fordyce granules, they have kind of a yellowish hue just under that outer layer. Exostosis is a localized developmental growth of normal bone. So if you take a look in the oral vestibule, 
It's on the attached gingiva portion of the maxillary and mandibular teeth. And sometimes it'll be just sporadic, uh, but sometimes it'll be generalized. Uh, sometimes they're very prominent. It's usually hereditary, uh, the etiology of it. And you'll see it on the facial surface of the maxillary alveolar bone and the facial surfaces of the mandibular alveolar bone. And usually you can note exostoses upon palpation, but sometimes you can see it visibly when you look in your patient's mouth. Taurus palatinus or palatal taurus is a developmental growth of normal bone that is found on the midline of the palate, uh, which is also hereditary. You can sometimes visibly see a palatal torus, but sometimes they're slight and you have to palpate it in order to discover a palatal torus that exists. And sometimes palatal torus will give you challenges when you're taking radiographs or impressions. And sometimes if it's large enough, a palatal torus will be very challenging for your patient uh, with home care habits. Mandibular tori are developmental growths of normal bone that are similar to the palatal torus, only they're located on the mandibular arch. They are hereditary in nature, and they're found on the lingual aspect of the mandibular arch. And typically, you'll see these located bilaterally in the premolar region. And very similar to the palatal torus, these will give you challenges when you're taking radiographs on your patient, impressions on your patient, or when your patient is trying to access these areas uh, to perform oral hygiene. Melanin pigmentation is also considered a variant of normal. It's described as a localized macule of pigmentation, and it's caused by the presence of melanin. Uh, it's a normal finding, and it's most commonly associated with a darker-skinned individual. Um, you'll see that melanin pigmentation of the gingiva. So when you're taking a look and you're doing your gingival assessment, this would be a color notation that you would indicate, but it is a variant of normal. Taking a look at the underbody of the tongue, you will sometimes see lingual varicosities, and these are very prominent lingual veins that you will note, almost like having uh, varicose veins in your legs, so picture that uh, on the underbody side of the tongue. An additional variant of normal is known as linea alba. Linea alba can be described as a raised ridge of hyperkeratinized tissue that's located right on the buccal mucosa. It's usually found at the level of the occlusal plane and it's associated with parafunctional habits such as grinding or cheek biting. You can almost see that the suction that's created by grinding your teeth or clenching your teeth actually pulls the buccal mucosa against that occlusal plane of the upper and lower teeth and creates that line. When a patient has a short lingual frenum, they can have what's called ankyloglossia, which is a partial or a complete fusion of the tongue to the floor of the mouth due to that abnormally short lingual frenum. 
And we sometimes, uh, layman's terms, we call this tongue-tied. This is a variant of normal that exists in patient populations. There are a few benign conditions that have an unknown origin that you should be familiar with. Fissured tongue, that condition is considered a variant of normal and it's characterized by deep grooves that are located on the dorsal surface of the tongue. Median rhomboid glossitis, which is uh, a condition that appears more prominent because the remaining dorsal surface of the tongue is coated. So when you see median rhomboid glossitis, it will be a standout right in the center of the tongue, just noted by color differentiation because of the filiform papilla being a change gradient. Geographic tongue, also known as benign migratory glossitis, which the dorsal and the lateral borders of the tongue are affected here. You'll see red patches, and it's a result of that filiform papilla and the patches surrounded by yellow and white borders. And when the filiform papilla regenerate, the area does return to normal, but the area with the, that begin to break down and the filiform papilla will be destroyed. So when you have this geographic tongue, it tends to migrate around and it will change and have a different pattern every time you see your patient. And it's okay to share this information with your patients so that they, if they tend to notice it here or there, they won't be alarmed by it. Hairy tongue is an abnormal elongation of the filiform papilla. So if you think about those filiform papilla as coating the whole dorsal surface of the tongue, being like a carpet, hairy tongue would be more like a shag rug. And the results is a thickened hairy appearance to the dorsal surface of the tongue. And we also have black hairy tongue where the hairy tongue becomes discolored. Maybe your patient has a tobacco uh, condition or they're taking medications or there's some kind of change in the saliva that creates um, color attachment to, that, to the filiform papilla. It could also be caused by chromogenic bacteria. So you want to note these variants of normal that exist and then question or make some connections as to why you're seeing what you're seeing clinically. Are you looking for study sheets? I've created study sheets that cover the content of this episode. If you're interested or if that's something that's going to help you on your learning journey, you can click the link listed right in the description of these show notes. Happy studying. I hope this episode was helpful for you in learning some of the basic components, structures, and enunciation of the oral facial structures so that you may go into the clinical setting and start learning how to perform a proper assessment and oral cancer screening on your patient. In the next episode, we'll review the basic structures of the periodontium. I would invite you to ask any questions at all that you need answered. Sometimes questions come up when you're listening to this podcast. If you have a question, most likely someone else has the very same question. I'd be happy to answer it and would probably share it in a future podcast. Thank you.